Would you, the rest, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 5? And we'll begin reading verse 11. Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you invite us to follow you, and that is precisely what we want to do. And we want to follow you as you reveal yourself in your word. And we pray that you would give to us hearts that are not dull, ears that hear sharply specifically what you have to say. And we ask that you would change our lives, that you would grow us into a mature people. And we pray for our children gathered in children's worship. Lord, draw them to yourself and use this ministry to give them faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a question that I want to begin this morning with, and it's a question that um, I thought a lot about um, and have throughout ministry, but, but in particular the last couple of years, I was, I was reading a book as uh, we were flying from Germany to South Africa uh, last year. And uh, as we were, uh, I think it was while we were going over the Mediterranean, it, it stimulated in me the question of what... What is maturity? What is Christian maturity? We, 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 we talk about that's what we're trying to accomplish as a church, but what does that mean? What, what would a mature Christian look like? What do we want to build through our ministries of this church? And I think it's a valid question for us to begin to ask, and, and there are a lot of uh, ideas that will come to us at, at first glance, and, and we may immediately say, well, a mature Christian is someone who's they're going to attend church and Sunday school and small group, and the super spiritual will also go to prayer group, uh, and and so these are the things that these are things that a mature Christian does. But is that what a mature Christian is? The question rises. A mature Christian is one who who knows the Bible and understands theology well. What well, is true that a mature Christian does know the Bible and understand theology well? But is that what it means to be a mature Christian? You say, well, it's somebody who's able to teach and evangelize effectively. And, and whereas a mature Christian probably is able to teach and, and is able to evangelize, I'm not sure that that's what actually defines a mature Christian. I want to su- suggest, and what I've come to conclude through my years of being a Christian, which uh, December 23rd will be 40 years of, of being a Christian, and uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that A mature Christian is someone who believes. Faith is the mature Christian. Someone who's able to trust Jesus no matter what. As I think about those Christians that I most admire when I think about their Christian life, those who I have watched walk with the Lord, and I look at and I say, I really, really look up to that individual, or biographies that I've read of great Christians. I come back to the same principle time after time after time. These are individuals that come what may, their faith remains unshaken, that they stand firm no matter what's happening in the life around them. They believe in the midst of it. That's what a mature Christian is. The Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to 
had a weak faith. We recognize that, and some of the reasons for that were the persecution that they faced in becoming Christians. They were Jews. They were raised in the, the Jewish faith, but the Jewish faith was more than just a Jewish faith. It wasn't as though you had this cosmopolitan community that some people went to mosques, some people went to the Hindu temple, some people went to a Christian church, some people went to the Jewish synagogue. That isn't what took place. No, Judaism was the society. It was the entire culture. It was the, the fullness of their community. And so then when, when Christianity came as a, as, as a part or a, an expansion of, of Judaism, it was persecuted by the, the government who didn't believe that it ought to be there, but it was also persecuted by the Jewish community because you're, you're turning your back on what we've been taught. You're turning your back on, on, on what our faith is. And so therefore, these, these Jewish Christians would, would risk losing family. They'd risk losing friends. They'd risk losing uh, respect within their community. And all of these were important factors that they had to face and that became difficulties. It was also true that the, the new covenant, particularly among the Jewish community, was not a popular idea, that there should be this new administration of the covenant of grace. They weren't real keen on that. And so all of these things became pressures, and, and though they, they ought to be teachers, if you look at verse 12, he, he points this out, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have become come to need milk and not solid food. So they recognize this, this weakness. The reason I bring this up is, is I, I, one of the reasons I chose Hebrews as a, a book that tells us to follow Jesus is because I recognize that within the, the Presbyterian subculture of America, if you will, that uh, more than some other denominations, we see generations of Presbyterians that grandparents worshiping with their children and their grandchildren together and, and seeing those grandchildren grow up in the church and then become the leaders of the church. And this is something that, that becomes common. But with it comes the danger that we begin to think that being in the church is the answer. But it's not. We need Jesus. Each individual needs that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Each individual needs faith. And so... Uh, I, in, in considering the idea of following Jesus, I see this as, as a vital message for us to remember that we are called to believe and we're called also to train for maturity. Just as the uh, first century Jews at this time that the author wrote to was calling them that they need to put forth the effort, they need to train themselves, they need to work toward maturity. So we too need to, to pursue maturity, which is faith a residing faith, a continual faith. And we'll look at faith a, a little bit more in a moment. Well, so how do, we, how do we train for maturity? I think the first is we have to learn to, to build on the basics. I think it was John Madden that tells a story of one of his first times that he ever uh, interacted with Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was doing a seminar on football. And he started out and he lifted up a football. And he said, this is a football. There's a man who knows how to start with the basics, right? right? Here's, here's the most basic principle we can have, and he's probably one of the greatest teachers of football as a coach, and that's what made him such a great coach, was his ability to teach precisely what needed to be done by each player on the field. And as he taught them then on, on Sundays, he was mostly useless because it wasn't time to be teaching them. They needed to just do it. But he had taught them and taught them and taught them the basic principles. 
And that's where he started from. And, and I think that's a, a great starting point. We look in this passage and he says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you what? The elementary principles. Literally, the first principles. The, the Greek word there for elementary is, is arc or arche, uh, from which we get words like archaic, meaning, meaning old, right? But it also is a word for, for like an archangel, right? Which means an important, it's one of the first angels, or we may have an arch enemy, right? Because you've got a list of your enemies, probably, right? And you've got that arch enemy, right? And, and, they're just, and that's the first of the enemies. That's the word that's used here. It's, it's the first principles. It's these, these foundational, these most basic of all the principles is what he says that they need to understand. These Jewish believers were leaning toward a return to the Old Covenant. That we need to go back to synagogue. That we need to go back to sacrifices. We need to go back to the Old Testament fasting. We need to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things. And there was that pull because that's what their community was pulling them toward. And they were wrestling with this. And with it, that would, it would include a, a, a dichotomy between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that they're two separate things and, and we need to pull them apart. So the author of Hebrews isn't saying that. He isn't saying reject the Old Covenant. He's saying build upon the Old Covenant. Those are the first principles. Those are the elementary principles. Those are essential. We have to stand firm on those if we are to move toward maturity. They are an essential part of what we hold to. This leads, uh, I just want to share just a little bit about, uh, there are two different ways, two primary schools of thought uh, in interpreting the, the scripture and understanding uh, redemptive history. One way that we as uh, Reformed Presbyterians would hold to is that of covenant theology. And that is to say that we believe that the concept of covenant, that is God's relationship with his people, that God having that relationship with his people is what structures scripture. And there are really two covenants in, in Scripture that we see. We see the old covenant, if you will, or the covenant of works, actually, that we see. And that was with Adam and Eve. And it was a covenant in which their salvation was based on them obeying God perfectly. When they failed to do that, God entered into the second covenant, which is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace has several different administrations, but it's one covenant. And he starts out with Adam, and in Adam he gives him the covenant promises of saying to the serpent that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he'll crush you on the head and you'll crush him on the heel. And he begins there with the covenant promises, but inside that covenant are all of the promises that would be later revealed in the covenant with Jesus and the new covenant. They were all present with Adam, and then they were expanded with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with Moses, and with David, and we got to see more of them, but they were all there. So that the promises are all united from, from, from Genesis 3 through Revelation. And it's all the same idea of God's covenant. Whereas the, the other perspective uh, popular today is dispensationalism. And dispensationalism believes that God is, is dealing with his people in, uh, in dispensations. And during a dispensation, he has certain ways in which he deals with his people. And at the end of that dispensation, there's a test and people fail, and so he begins a whole new dispensation. And he begins to deal with them in an entirely new way. And so that happens in successive dispensations throughout the Scripture. The challenge with that is, that's the idea then that would put a, a block between the Old Covenant, 
the old administration of the covenant of grace, and the new covenant, as though they would be two separate things. But as we look at Scripture, we see this unified theme that, that we don't step off of the old covenant promises and start something new, but they are the very basis on which we're able to move forward. And I believe that's what the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers. You aren't throwing away your Jewishness. You're building on it. You're expanding, you're understanding exactly what it meant. And that's how we grow in our our maturity, is to build on the basics. How do we build on the basics? I think we have to learn to sharpen our understanding. Look at verse uh, 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Have become dull of hearing and that phrase, become dull, is actually a single word in, in, in Greek, and it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense uh, is different. The aorist is, is usually translated as, as past tense, and it, it means it is a completed action. The perfect tense means it's a completed action with ongoing effect. So when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, and he uses the perfect tense. It's a completed action, but it has effect from now on. When Paul says, by grace you have been saved, it's in the perfect tense that it's a completed action that is ongoing effect. And here he says, you have become dull. That there's a moment in which suddenly I became dull of hearing. I want to look at what that means and, and how we become dull of hearing. One of the ways we see is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. As Paul writes, and he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And that's a dullness of hearing that takes place. That is that desire to just be affirmed. I remember in seminary, uh, first day of class, that Reginald McClellan spoke to us on philosophy, and and he came in to uh, teach us. And he said, I think it was the, the philosophy class was ethics. And he said, look, let's be clear. I understand that none of you came here to learn. You just came here to be affirmed. And I was taken aback because I began to look at my heart and I began to see that he was, he was probably right. That really, to me, good preaching is preaching that tells me I'm right. You know? And that's just kind of where I am. That's... That's a dullness of hearing, isn't it? That means I'm not critically examining myself to see if I'm right. I'm just assuming it, and I demand that everybody else assumes it too. There's that dullness of hearing that he writes about. And uh, the, the, the other way that I think we can become dull of hearing, and I am going to skip a slide, sorry, uh, Holly, but um, the other way that I can become dull of hearing is sometimes... And I think usually it's, it's, it's an emotional response to either a person or a word that's said. Have you experienced it? To where you're talking with someone, and usually it happens when there's some, at least a little bit of conflict, and someone says something, and have you ever noticed them, they said, and, and all of a sudden, I don't really hear what they're saying anymore. That I'm just, I'm just set off, that, that they said something and now I'm gone, and now there's nothing that's actually penetrating. I've, I've quit listening, for whatever reason that may be. And maybe it's because of the person, it may be that they remind me of someone, it may be that there's a, a past relationship, it may be a, a thousand other things, but I emotionally allow myself at some point to become dull of hearing, and I'm not, I'm not listening anymore. 
This is what the author is saying was true of these Jewish Christians and a part of why they were, they were struggling at this time. They become dull of hearing. And the reality is it's not just them, it's us too. Sometimes as Christians we can become dull of hearing. Think about the reality that we face of the dullness of the church of hearing that for centuries slavery was permitted among Christians and promoted among Christians. Such a tragedy and a travesty, and yet Christians would stand up to support such a horrible crime of one man against another. And raising, raising such, such idiotic ideas of one race being superior to another. And it's promoted among Christianity. And sometimes even today. Because we become so dull of hearing. Is it only they who can be dull of hearing? Or is it me too? I've got to recognize that I have that potential. If they could miss such easy things that we look at today and say, how could you possibly miss it? What will my grandchildren look at and say, how could you possibly miss that, Pop? We've got to guard ourselves. We've got to guard our hearts. One of the ways I think we can do that is a, a sign that uh, a friend that I knew um, had a, a factory in Florida, and he put this up in his shop. And he took his shop foreman through, and he said, here, I want you to read my new sign. Stop. Think. The foreman said, that's really cool. What do you mean by that? He says, what? Oh, look. Stop. Think. Yeah, well, what does that mean? No, no. That's it. Enough said, Right? Right? Think about how much of our life would be better if we would do that. Just stop. Think. Stop. Think. When I begin to listen to a sermon, or in the middle of a sermon, or at any moment when I sense that maybe my hearing has become dull, stop. Which means I'm going to have to set aside my expectations. I was recently asked by a young man. He said, you've been a, a Christian a long time. You have devotions every day. You've read most of the scripture or all the scripture. And you've read it multiple times. How do, you, um, how do you keep it fresh when you're reading a passage that you've, you're familiar with and you've read it a, a dozen times? Like if I'm having devotions in Ephesians, I think I've preached to Ephesians four or five times. Uh, one time I took five and a half years to get through the book of Ephesians. So I've studied it pretty thoroughly. I've taught through it a half dozen or more times, uh, written papers on it. How do you keep it fresh? And I thought, you know, that's just a really good question. I don't think I do perfectly. But those times when I do, I think what I do is I stop and I think this is God's message to me. I don't need something old. I don't need something new. I just need to listen to what God has to say, right? So that means I've got to set aside my expectations and just allow him to deal with me. I've got to sharpen my understanding. And, and to do that, I'm also going to have to ask myself, what, what has God said? He goes on to say in verse 12, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. The word oracles is uh, the Greek word logion, which comes from logos, logos, 
Uh, you're familiar with that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's logos. That's the word that's used there. It's usually translated as word. It carries more of an idea of the logic, the thinking that goes behind it, but it, but it holds to that. And the Jews understood those oracles as being the basic principles of the Old Testament. They understood what the basic principles of the Old Testament were. I want us to think about those basic principles for just a couple of moments and to, to go through uh, three of them that I think are central. And the first, first uh, basic principle of the Old Testament that we see is that God will redeem his people. That was the point of Genesis 3, is he's saying, I'm going to redeem you. You've fallen, but I'm going to redeem you. And he's going to send the Messiah to redeem them. He promises that. He's going to redeem his people, and in redeeming his people, we see that in, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, where he promises Abraham, and he enters into the formal element of the covenant with Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And in Exodus chapter 17 or 19, he enters into the covenant with Moses and he says to the children of Israel, he says, now then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now he tells them that he's going to make them his own people. And as he begins to give them the commands in, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, he begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I've redeemed you before he gives him the commands. God will redeem his people and he's going to use a Messiah to do that. That's what he promises, is that he will use a Messiah. He will send a Messiah. The second principle is that God's people must trust the Messiah. They're going to have to put their trust in him if they're going to be saved. And the third principle is, and this is where the new covenant comes, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the message that he wants to get across to them, and Jesus is the Messiah. Put your trust in him. Do you believe? that Jesus is the Messiah. Put your trust in him. We need to build on the basics. These are the basics upon which we can build. Then we need to dwell in God's word. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, that uh, our, our pew Bibles, which are in seats, so they really are seat Bibles, uh, instead of being the New American Standard, imagine that they were a uh, children's Bible story book instead. Imagine if I was preaching from a children's Bible story book. Imagine if the songs that we sang were all songs that came out of a children's Bible story book. Imagine if our Bible studies were all over a children's Bible story book. What would we have? What would, we, what would, what would come from that? There's several different things that we would begin to see as we'd have a, a, some level of morality that we would focus on, right? As the Bible story books seem to do that. We'd have a vague concept of faith. We would have seen that but it'd be kind of light on the idea of, of justification, wouldn't it? Justification being he forgives us of our sins and he imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us. Those are concepts that are a little beyond our children, so we don't usually teach that. I think if we think about it from that perspective, we get an idea of exactly what uh, the, the, the people at this time were, were wrestling with because they were not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And the word righteousness is the same word that from which we get justification. They were not accustomed to what this whole concept of justification means. Even though it was in the Old Testament, they hadn't grasped it and were living according to that. And he goes on to talk about that, that that's the difference between wanting milk is, is that when you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness and having 
Meat is having the word of righteousness be regular. Uh, avoid pride, friends. All of us. I see it all the time. And I, I, I've learned that milk is what they long for and meat is what we get. Whatever group you're in, right? The other group always wants just milk and we want the, the, the meat. And that's the, the difference. And uh, we begin to... to build that pride in us. That's not what he's talking about. And we can't allow ourselves to have that pride build up inside us, but recognize that sometimes we wrestle with it. And so we learn to discern good and evil. As he says that they, they have been trained to discern good and evil, I know where their minds would have gone. Their minds immediately would have gone to Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In which they were seeking to discern what is good and what is evil. And we, by, by dwelling in God's word, we learn to discern good and evil. Think about what the devil did in order to deceive Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He asked the question, has God said? Isn't that usually where we begin to fall? We begin to question God's word. Well, is that what he said? Is that really what he said? Is that really, really what the Word of God says? And we begin to, to question that and, and to wonder, and we come up with these new crazy ideas that, in essence, just set aside what the Word simply says. And we've got to guard ourselves and not allow ourselves to go into that place. The second thing we see is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the servant said to the woman, you surely will not die. The question then we rise is, okay, well, God said it, but he didn't mean me, right? He said, uh, pride goes before the fall, but that's for them, not for me. And so I don't need to worry about it. But the reality is he's talking to me too. And so as just as, as Satan was saying, well, you won't surely die. Don't worry about that. No big deal. That, that isn't what's going to happen. He does the same thing with us. But yeah, but he's not talking to you. That's for all of them. They need to follow that. The idea of being kind to your, to your enemies, that's for them, not you. You can be mean and, and nasty. And the third is that we get this idea that somehow life is found in disobedience. Look at verse 5. He said, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How does Satan say we're going to learn good and evil? By experiencing sin, right? You're going to understand good and evil when you sin. Is that what God said? Is that what the Word of God says? What we're seeing in Hebrews is that we discern good and evil as we dwell in the Scripture, not by going out and sinning all the sins so that we might be able to discern good and evil. We learn to discern it by dwelling in the Scriptures and letting the Scriptures begin to guide us. Psalm 119, verse 9. How should a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Now think about the two different ways that we can begin to look at this idea of, of obedience that we see from this passage. On the one hand, we can go ahead and say, okay, so I obey in order that I might be acceptable to God. That's why I need to, to obey, Right? No, the other way of looking at it, under the word of righteousness, knowing that I'm justified is, because I know I'm accepted by God, I'm able to obey, to show that acceptance from God. And there's that distinction that's there. To dwell in God's word means I learn to discern good and evil, but to do that, I've got to practice faith. I've got to practice faith. He talks about, because of practice, have their senses trained. Because of practice, by doing it over and over and over again. Here's where I promise that we're going to talk a little bit about faith. And the idea that I want us to think about when it comes to faith is the idea that, that we are temporal beings. We like to think of ourselves as being 
um, unchangeable, as living outside of time, if you will. I just want you to think for a moment and try to experience now. Just now. Okay, so you take a second, right? Uh, I guess here I, I kind of need Matt to give me a beat, right? Give me a one-second beat. Okay, so there's a second. We can experience that, right? Now let's get a half a second. Okay, and now a half a half a second. Okay, and, and a half 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 we can't go there, right? We can't experience that. Which means I'm constantly living either in the future or the past. I'm either remembering something just was or thinking about something that just will be. I can never actually narrow it down so finely that I'm in the now. Only God can do that because He is. He says, I am. He's in the now. We are constantly in the, in the ever-moving existence of, of time. And so we believe, but that doesn't mean that I believed way back then, therefore I always believe. No, I have to believe at this moment, and now at this moment, and now at this moment, and now at this moment. Do you see the point? I have to continually choose to believe at every instant in which I am conscious of my existence. It's a choice to believe. That is Christian maturity. And that takes practice. I've got to work at it. I've got to work hard at it. But it's good. Philip Yancey writes about it in his book, Disappointment with God. He says, human beings grow by striving, working, stretching. And in a sense, human nature needs problems more than solutions. Why are not all prayers answered magically and instantly? Why must every convert travel the same tedious path of spiritual discipline? Because persistent prayer and fasting and study and meditation are designed primarily for our sakes, not for God's. We're not doing it for Him. We're doing it for us because we've got to practice. And by practice, we begin to implement it, to practice faith. And faith means to live consistent with perceived truth. I use the word perceived in there because we can live consistent with falsehood, can't we? We can perceive truth wrong. And so we can have faith in wrong things, but it's still faith. Now, saving faith is faith lived, is a life lived consistent with truth. If faith is to live consistent with perceived truth, the first step of really building my faith is I've got to be battling to think truth. This is why Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. That means I am going to remove from my mind all of those thoughts that are not consistent with truth, and I'm going to fill my mind with thoughts that are consistent with the truth, remembering thy word is truth, and that is what will guide me to think truth, and then to live it. To live it out in the midst of hardship. To live in hardship knowing that God is with me and He is faithful. The third step, and this is the shortest of the three points, because you know it, but I want to focus on it. It's all about Jesus. Look at verse 11. He says, concerning Him, 
And commentators talk about that in, in two different ways. It can mean concerning him, meaning concerning Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ. And some would say that, well, is, a, is he Christ or is he an incarnate uh, incarnation, pre-incarnation of Christ? And I, I think that that's pushing more than the scripture allows us. I think he's just a type of Christ. Or is it saying concerning him is Jesus who is typified by Melchizedek? And I look at it and I say, does it really matter? In the end, isn't the answer Jesus? It's all about Jesus. Whether it's, it's that he's typified by Melchizedek or, or uh, Melchizedek typifies him. It doesn't really matter. What does Melchizedek typify? It's Jesus. Do you think that the author of Hebrews really wants to take a lot of time to exegete Melchizedek for the people, you think that's going to build up their faith and you need to know more about Melchizedek, right? That has all of like five verses in which he's mentioned in the Bible, right? No. No, he really wants to tell them about Jesus. And there's two things that I want you to understand about Jesus. He loves you. Not he loves you like the celebrity who gets up on stage and hears the applause and says, I love you, right? Right? Which is clearly not a, a, a deep sentiment of commitment to you. But he loves you as an unconditional commitment to your highest good. Unconditional commitment to your highest good. That is how he loves you. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. I'm going to read verse 7 as well, because I think verse 7 really gives us the context for this. Verse 7, he says, So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. He says, my people are, are living in rebellion. So what does he say in response to that? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, which are two places that receive the wrath of God? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. This is the love that God has for you. This is the intensity of his affection for you. It's not some cheap junk mail kind of love that's just sent out to resident of earth. It is a love that is sent to you as individuals. I love the way that Michael Card put it. He says, he who is the sovereign God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will not love you less. And he who is the Almighty cannot love you more. And the second point is, he's enough. Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. He's enough. When I think about Olympic athletes, the Olympic athlete that I, it is just me, and uh, I had a couple swimmers in the earlier uh, service, and they were a little upset at this, but, but it's the gymnast to me that typifies. I mean, to just, just thinking about what they accomplish, right? Because all of us can grab two rings that are just hanging and, and just, just hang like this, right? And then push ourselves up and back down. And just because people are watching, we'll go ahead and pull our legs up to a straight 90-degree uh, uh, angle, right? And then, well, we'll just kind of spin then around up and then go up into a handstand because we can all do that. You look at it, it's like, and ah, I don't know how. And the answer is phenomenal training, right? But the strength that they have combined to the balance and the complete control of their body are amazing to me. And I think they're a great picture of what we're talking about because the word that's used in our passage about train, 
trained to discern good and evil, is the word um, gumnazo, from which we get gymnastics. We need to be biblical gymnastics or Christian gymnastics or gymnasts or however that would be. We at least need to learn how to use words properly. But they train. We need to train ourselves for maturity. And maturity is faith. To do that, we've got to build on basics. We've got to dwell in God's word. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thanks for your love. Thanks for your goodness and grace. Please draw us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.